Welcome aboard the USS Aeronome. To become a member of our crew, please visit perfectorganism.com slash support. As a patron of Perfect Organism, you'll receive exclusive perks and early access to content. Incoming audio transmission received. Please proceed to Subdeck 3 to begin playback. Thank you, and welcome aboard. I think we ought to discuss the bonus situation. Right. Brett and right. I, we think we ought to, we deserve full shares, right, right baby? You see, Mr. Park and I feel that the bonus situation is... Move! Get out of there! George, move! Move down! Move down! Get out! <laughs> Welcome to Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast. I am your host, your co-host, Jamie Prater. And I'm your host, your co-host, Patrick Green. What up, my friend? Hello, how you doing? I'm doing great. I'm excited to talk about something I actually know something about for once tonight, because we're going to dive into the fucking music behind this beautiful movie. Yep. Uh, and uh, and I think we both have a lot to say about it, so I'm excited. Well, I'm excited too, and the score for Alien, which is what we're talking about today, is one of my favorite scores of all time. It, it vies for top spot between Alien and Alien 3. It's absolutely profound, and it, it, it was written by Jerry Goldsmith. Funny side note, earlier today, I was writing some text about something, and I was like, William Goldsmith, William Goldsmith, I'm like, wait a minute, why am I writing William Goldsmith, Goldsmith? And so I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm like, it's Jerry Goldsmith, and I don't know why it slipped William Goldsmith? <laughs> well, it's like, remember remember the, with Vincent Ward? Like, I had, I grew up with a kid named Eric Ward, and so mm-hmm. I'm like, all of yes. our fucking stuff from back then, it says Eric Ward, and, and then somebody's like, who are you talking about? I'm like, oh my God. It just gets in your head sometimes, you know? Like Vangelis? Oh my God, I know. Although that's Von, more Von to That's how he says it. He says Vangelis. Yep. I, I. So stop giving us shit, people. <laughs> so back the fuck down. <laughs> no, I'm really excited. This is a, You're right. This is an amazing score. And it's a score that's grown on me a lot um, over my lifetime. And I think I see it now more for uh, for what it, for what it really is and for how important it was in the history of film scoring, especially in sci-fi and horror. Um, it just was such a, a landmark score from a guy who... You know, was coming off an Academy Award. He just won for the Omen. Like Jerry Goldsmith was like a king in the industry by that point, and in a lot of ways, a very weird choice for this film, which we'll get into momentarily. Like he was not. I mean, he wasn't really Scott's first choice. He wasn't the studio's first choice. I don't think he was his own first choice for this movie. And um, through a series of really interesting collaborative decisions, they arrived at the score that has become totally indelible, and I think one of the one of the great scores of the 20th century. I would agree. And it's one of those scores for me that don't tell me what to feel. They ask me what I'm feeling, if that makes sense to you. It says, here's, it's, it's akin to walking into the Grand Canyon. And it's like listening to the sounds, the natural sounds of the canyons as the wind blows through, through the crevices and everything. And that's what the music reminds me of. And it's saying, here you are, how are you feeling? As opposed to, you should feel like this right now, which is what a lot of even scores back then and now tell you, which is 
music that's trying to tell you how to feel as opposed to ask you how you feel. Oh, yeah. And I will say that it's interesting. The the actual the way that the soundtrack was put out originally when it was put out as an LP is a lot more of that. Let me tell you what you should feel kind of a thing because it was so uh, excerpted and it was so short and it was much more in line with what Ridley Scott was looking for, which was not that airy open score. He wanted something that was very much like portray the visuals as music. Give me a lot of big slapping beats to use to scare people. He, he really wanted it to be a horror score in outer space. And Goldsmith was like, you know, and I, I really want to show people, I want to illustrate the feelings that are going on. I want to give voice to the things that aren't in the frame that are happening in the margins of the frame to kind of fill in people's experience. And Ridley Scott and for that matter, the studio and, and Terry Rawlings even were like, no, like we have not marked the film out that way. We want a lot of beats, you know? Um, we'll get into this in a minute, but what's, what's, what's so great is I think when we saw the music get reissued, especially in 2007 with the Entrada edition, which is the one that we use, or at least I use when I edit episodes on this show, you probably have the same one. Um, that is the one that is just the definitive recording that is way longer. It includes way more material and it is a much more accurate view into what Goldsmith really intended for this thing because he finally had creative control over how it was being portrayed. So before we get uh, up and running with talking about the score, uh, I'm going to take a couple of minutes, if that's okay, to kind of just fill in some blanks on Goldsmith's life, where he was in his career when he came to this point, and then um, a little bit about the creative process that he went through with Alien, and then we can kind of break the score down a little bit. Does that sound good? Let's do it. All right. So Goldsmith was one of those people who was born in the right place at the right time. He was born in 1929 in Los Angeles. He started off as a piano student. He got into music theory. That led him to study at USC, which is, of course, where we've seen you know probably 75% of the people that we've talked about on these podcasts at some point went to go study at USC. The reason he went to study at USC was because there was a faculty member there named Miklos Rosa, who was a uh, film score titan at the time, who had written the score for this movie Spellbound in 1945. And um, Jerry Goldsmith Starring... saw that. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I was thinking... Jim Carrey. No, Spellbound is with uh, Gregory Peck. But yep. when you said Spellbound, I thought of The 29 Steps, which stars Sigourney Weaver's mother, Alfred Hitchcock Connection. Anyways, continue. Wow, yeah. interesting. Yeah, look, it all comes together. So, yeah, so he was inspired by Miklos Rosa. Went to USC to study with him. He eventually transferred to uh, Los Angeles City College, which I know nothing about. But as, as the token Los Angeles person on the show, do you know anything about that school? I do not. Okay. Well, he went there, and he, he did really well for himself, so congratulations, Los Angeles City College. Um, he uh, started off as a clerk at CBS, and while he was there, they were putting on a lot of these kind of employee-produced radio plays. And it was basically like you just pulled people from different departments who could help put something together quick live on the air, and they needed somebody who could write some quick um, score music. And although he was there as like a typist and a clerk, he was like, well, I you know do a lot of piano stuff, and I, you know like this kind of thing. So he was pulled into that and he was, of course, incredible at it. So he got bigger jobs, which led to him doing live television, live radio, and then it led to him doing TV products like The Twilight Zone. And by that point, you know, he was up and running. That was his, his career was really going. And because he's one of these people who we see, like very much like Ridley Scott, I think, who are able to come into the Hollywood studio system and like fucking reform it around themselves, he was able to find a niche and just really, really go all out 
in that direction. And he, you know, over the course of this long career, produced music for, you know, tons of Star Trek films. He did Logan's Run, Planet of the Apes, Patton. 176 Star Trek episodes. 176 Star Trek episodes. 176 yes. Star Trek episodes. That's how oh many. God. I mean, that's how prolific this man was. He also did a Crazy. really favorite film of mine, which is The Secret of Nim. Secret of Amazing Nim. Amazing yeah. score. I love it. Listen to it all yep. the time. Oh, yeah. He did so uh, LA Confidential. He did so much good shit. Um, and what's interesting is I feel like he gets pigeonholed a little bit because when we think Jerry Goldsmith, at least speaking personally, I think obviously Alien, but I also think like Patton and Planet of the Apes because those were kind of his big early breakout hits that I think kind of defined a sound that I associate with him. But when you look at his filmography, which as we're saying goes on and on and on, he wrote really widely varying stuff uh, throughout an extremely long career. And, um, and I think he, although he's considered one of the greats, I think he gets pigeonholed a little bit as this kind of orchestral pseudo John Williams character. But he's really more than that. He's done a lot of really interesting work. A lot of it has incorporated electronics, which I'll talk about in a moment. Um, he's more dynamic and diverse than I think people give him credit for. And with Alien, I think you see a lot of those influences coming out um, to the fore. One thing I wanted to add is what I love about Goldsmith's work is that yeah. with some composers or a lot of composers you're like oh yeah i can sort of hear this i can hear bernard herman and john williams not that that's a bad thing artists borrow from each other all the time goldsmith really is his own beast he's he's responsible for his own sound and it's depending on what you're hearing is depending on what how it sounds he's he was really good at making a specific score for a very specific piece of art film commercial whatever as opposed to when you so you unless you're listening to alien or a couple other pieces like you wouldn't if you listen to the like the score to the secret of nim i can pick up that i hear some violins some similarities there most people wouldn't even know whereas with john williams or michael nyman or jan tiersen you 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 hear something they've done and you're like that's john williams that's jan tiersen that's michael nyman that's whoever you know, so I, James I just, Horner. I mean, yeah, there's total there's a lot of, a lot of film scores yeah, like that. Don't totally. get me started on James Horner. Rest in peace. <laughs> <laughs> and there's nothing there's nothing wrong with that. But just like we were saying in the last episode we did um, in the series about Ridley Scott and two different schools of directors, there's definitely two different schools of film scoring, right? Like there are people who write like Van Gallus is a great example. His film scores could not have been written by any other person in the world. And they sound like Van Gelis wrote those film scores, right? His other music might not have sounded exactly like what we think of when we think of Van Gelis, but his film scores are unmistakably Van Gelis. With uh, with somebody like uh, like Jerry Goldsmith, like his film scores are all over the place stylistically and aesthetically. They but they all have a certain convincing ability to portray the inner worlds of the characters in a way that to me feels very much about the art of filmmaking and not about the art of storytelling. And what I mean by that is, to me, Vangelis is not about filmmaking. He's about storytelling. He's about doing something kind of non-cinematic, although I, you, you talk about his music being cinematic, and I agree with you in that it feels cinematic. But what, what I mean is that I, I get the sense that Vangelis basically just disappears into a cave and he writes his version of whatever story he's been told by the film, right? 
Whereas Jerry Goldsmith, to me, is somebody who comes into a project and he will do a great job. Like, you don't have to worry about, you will get a really good commercially viable film score out of this thing. Just like, so here's a great example. Hans Zimmer is like that, right? Hans Zimmer also has written tons, he's written everything from the fucking Lion King to 2049. He's done an amazingly diverse amount of work. He's won Academy Awards. He's a, a mega star in the field. And, um, and his stuff, some of it sounds similar. A lot of it doesn't. But when you have Hans Zimmer come into a project, you are basically saying, we need somebody who we know will deliver on this, which is why Johan Johansson, although he was an amazing genius, was replaced by Zimmer and Ben Walfish for 2049, right? Jerry Goldsmith was that kind of a composer to me. He was somebody who you would pull into a project, you would get the budget for him, and then you would basically say, okay, great, now let's go sit down, let's look at dailies, let's mark this shit up, um, and we're going to go ahead and spot this film from beginning to end, and we'll talk about spotting in a minute, and we're going to make sure that every cue lines up exactly right and that it's hitting the emotional note that we're looking for, and he would always do a great job of that, and that's why he got so much work over his career, I think. Um, so Alien. So a lot of the info that I'm going to tell you in a, in a moment comes from the incredible book, which we are now on every single episode trumpeting. And we should, at this point, we should probably be sponsored by it, although we're not. But if you want to change your mind about that, you can do a Titan book. Uh, J.W. Rinsler's amazing The Making of Alien, which I'm finally far along now in that I can start using it as research for episodes. Any of you listening, if you haven't bought this yet, just just do it. As we mentioned uh, a couple episodes ago, it's like super cheap on Amazon right now. It is an enormous book that has so many things that I've never heard of in my entire life. And I am one of the biggest Alien fans I've ever met. <laughs> and I and I and there are things in here that still surprise me. So please pick it up. Um, but I'm going to go through a couple of kind of the basics with his time in Alien. And then we're going to go into the score. So, uh, so he was brought in in November after the shooting was all wrapped up, and he was given 10 weeks to write it. So basically, starting in December, he was going to have until the end of the winter when they were going to be recording in February. Which is ridiculous, because it doesn't... That's a very short window for a composer. Oh, Usually yeah. they start well, on a project months, almost sometimes a year before. Right. Well, at that time, they definitely did. Now, unfortunately, it's like even worse than that. Sometimes people are getting six weeks to write a score for something, which I think is just terrible. But yeah, you're right. It was a very tight window. Um, and that's because of where they were in the budget and in the timeline of the film at this point. They were like, we have to get this thing out. Um, and that's, again, why they went with Goldsmith. So getting to that, Scott really wanted this to be scored by this dude named Isao Tomita. And Isao Tomita was a pioneering synth composer who wrote... Uh, he, he developed some of the earlier uh, analog synthesizer systems. He wrote a lot of these amazing reconstructions of orchestral scores using synthesizers. He did a lot of avant-garde space music. And his music had been used uh, as temp scoring for a lot of the shoot. So um, as they were putting it together, they were using these kind of crazy abstract synth-driven soundscapes to set it. And Ridley Scott was like, we have to find if if Isao Tomita is like available, if he's like a person, we need to like drag him down and get him in here. And of course, this is his second feature film. The studio was like, uh, that's that's not going to happen. We need somebody who we will get on this project. We need somebody who we know will do a good job. So they suggested Jerry Goldsmith. Other people who were suggested, for example, were John Williams, who I think would have been uh, an extremely interesting and totally different choice for this movie. But um, but but basically, Scott, for this whole time, was kind of upset that they hadn't gotten Isao Tamita to join the, the film because um, he was shooting it with that music in his head. So Goldsmith was brought in, and he was very excited about it. He watched the movie alone, and he was really horrified, especially with Brett's death. And he felt like if he could write music that would help 
um, buttress that fear for other people, that he would do a good job with the fear part of it. So a quick word on why he was chosen for this project. Um, Planet of the Apes was like the dominant sci-fi thing in the air at that time outside of Star Wars. That was something that he had done and he had just knocked out of the park. He had just gotten the Academy Award the year earlier for The Omen. So you have like this huge sci-fi franchise and you have a, a an Academy Award winning horror picture. Those are the two things the studio was like, we're going to get this dude to score this film. He was also you know mid-career, good choice, and he was brought in. Um, so when he spotted the film with Scott and Rawlings... Um, he kept saying, we need to use more silence. So spotting is the thing that you do when you're film scoring, where you sit down with the editor and sometimes the director, whoever else is involved in the production of it um, at that level, and you go through and you basically mark out cues for things, right? So you go, so for example, at 17 minutes and 35 seconds, we need a slow build to something dark that happens at 17 minutes, 52 seconds, right? And you go through and you do this whole thing. That's not necessarily saying that there will be cues at all of those moments, but you're choosing where music's going to happen. So that way, when the score gets written, you can have references for where stuff fits. And in that process, um, he kept saying, we need more silence. We need to make it quiet. We need to spread things out more. And Scott was not on board with that at all. He said, no, we need to have a lot of music. It needs to be really edgy. We want to have a lot of big beats for things. It needs to be reinforced. Um, and it's interesting that when you get the full version of the score that we got in 2007, that it sounds way more silent, way more open, way more sparse, which is actually how it was supposed to be. Something that we didn't get into um, is that a lot of time film scorers will use orchestrators separately to help them get things done, you know, for example, in 10 weeks. So they'll write the music out at the piano or on the staff paper, and then the orchestrator will take it and they'll translate it to an orchestral setting, right? Um, so Goldsmith obviously had a lot of say in how things were orchestrated, and it wasn't like he was just giving it to this dude to go have fun with. And one thing that he decided was that the third big thematic thing that this score needed was music of the alien and music of the alien's world, music of, of the moon, right? So he decided to use, outside of just the orchestral things that had defined most of the rest of the score, a lot of really fascinating sounds, one of which I know you love because we talked about it a lot, and that is the sound of a conch shell being blown into a tape delay machine. Really? So that, that, <laughs> that sound that you hear on the surface of the planet, that's actually an Indian conch shell being blown into a tape delay, wow. uh, which is super cool. That's but awesome. also there's a Marshall synthesizer in the score. There's a didgeridoo. There's a serpent, which is a really obscure wind instrument with a curved bell. Um, and those are the sounds that make up this alien planet. So you combine that with the orchestral things that we'll talk about momentarily. And um, you get this totally interesting, unique score that I don't think sounds like really anything else. Um, one thing I want to say before I wrap this section is that one of the benefits of having a pro like Goldsmith as opposed to kind of an unknown entity like Isao Tomita, Isao Tomita rather, um, is that, for example, while they were recording this in February, five sections were completely rescored. Uh, so like he, that means that they were recording and for whatever reason, Scott or Rawlings or Goldsmith decided that it wasn't working the way that they wanted it to. And he would go back and he would write a new cue that day or the next day and they would come in and they would record it and these are session musicians who are pros who are on union they're on the dime they are like not going to waste time um, and so to have somebody with the ability to do that to respond in real time to artistic impetuses like that and to do a really good job that's that's priceless you know um uh so that's sort of you know the basic 
layout here of what uh, what was going on. The overriding tension that was going through this whole thing was that Scott was a very new director of feature films, and Goldsmith was not new to feature films at all. So Goldsmith kind of always assumed that he knew best, which sometimes he did, sometimes I don't think he did. And Scott was always kind of like, why is my composer like questioning everything I'm fucking saying? Like, just write, write the score. And that tension, I think, is part of why they were so um, reluctant to work together again for a while after this, because it was a really hard experience for both of them. But what came out of it, as we've seen so many times, and you can look back at our Alien 3 series for many examples of this is that in this environment of all this pressure a fucking pearl got created and that pearl was the score that was not entirely goldsmith and was not entirely ridley scott and it was not entirely terry rawlings and it was definitely not entirely 20th century fox it was something totally new and totally different that sounded like nothing before or since and i think is a completely worthwhile uh, addition to the great scores of all time totally and uh what i think is amazing about that score is that it doesn't sound like a score. It sounds like something very organic. Even though I know that there's instruments being played and things are swelling and things are becoming tense, it sounds like a, it sounds like the voice of the Nostromo when we're on the Nostromo. It sounds like the voice of Acheron. And his music includes sounds, organic sounds of things that sound like chains. Or what you just explained, the whatever that was, the conch shell, the conch shell, like yeah. So, so that tape delay, that tape delay I was talking about, he had used on a movie previous to this. And it, do you know what a tape delay is? Uh, vaguely explain. It, it it's me. it's what you think it is. It's just you, you you basically lay down a tape, you lay down a noise that gets recorded on a tape, and then the tape replays it at a certain interval mm-hmm. and re, and re-records itself. So, so it's like a you, a, lo- a, pre, a, a prolonged echo or reverb. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. so instead of just boom, it's boom, 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 boom. Right, I love exactly. that. I love that. Dum Me too. I, I love. I love the sound of like cavernous spaces. It's great. But again, his music sounds like something completely natural to the film. It doesn't sound like oh, that's the score. It's like no, it's alien. You know. And it's oh, a, yeah, totally. It's it's a rare composer that can create a, a a score like that. That can create a score that feels like you're not listening to music at all. Um. And if someone maybe knew, I would say maybe I would, Micah Levi's score for Under the Skin reminds me of Mm -hmm. Goldsmith, not so much in tone or melody, just in the sense that it feels completely natural. It doesn't feel like I'm being manipulated. It just feels very otherworldly. It feels like it's a part of the, the landscape. And when I think of the Nostromo, when I think of the planet, when I think of the derelict, I hear those sounds, not because I'm hearing score, but because I'm hearing character. I'm hearing what it would sound like if we went to this place and we are walking in the unknown. That's what it is. It's the unknown. His music sounds like the unknown. And how the music changes once you're in the Nostromo, and then the Nostromo becomes the unknown. The Nostromo turns into the derelict a little bit. Like, where are we now? Yes, it's somewhat familiar, but there's something aboard this ship that isn't familiar. And so now the ship is not home. The ship is death. And his music reflects that. And it's the subtle thing. And which is why I think his music has been copied so much in the films later on by James Horner, because it's so indelible. And it's so wholly unique. Totally, totally. It actually, when you were talking about, uh, is it Michael Levi? Michael Levi? It's Micah. Unless Micah I'm, Levi, right? Yeah. Levy? Levy? Is it Levy? I don't know. It could be. I don't know. But that's a great score. Um, it, it actually, I was actually thinking of somebody else whose name I will butcher the absolute shit out of right now. So I apologize. <laughs> but Hildur Guanadotier? 
Guana, I don't know, the woman who wrote the Chernobyl soundtrack to oh, me, fuck another yes. example of just like really amazing music that feels like, where did this come from? And also like, how could this have been scored any differently? Because of course with that, she used the sounds of a power plant. That was like her, her basis for it. Um, but the way that she uses it is, is so lyrical and so um, atmospheric that it's like to have scored it any differently would be such a betrayal. And I think about that with Goldsmith, too, because I think about what would have happened with if, if we had had Isao Tomita score it, and what a different movie it would have been, you know? Like, we talk a lot about Forbidden Planet on the series because it's the name of the series that we're doing, but the score for that is another just landmark 20th century film score, right? So, and that is, of course, like, produced with all these electronic sounds and this kind of abstract layering technique. So imagine that, but scoring Alien. It would be so anachronistic to me because the aesthetics that alien or, or that create alien the the sense of deliberate pacing and framing and stasis and stillness like that is why goldsmith score works so much to me it's like this complete void that into which all this romanticism gets injected and then gets pulled away before it has a chance to settle in you know it's a version of in my opinion vangelis vangelis oh His man work. now you're fucking it up whatever i don't care uh it's a version of what Vangelis <laughs> did for Blade Runner, where he created this soundscape that feels like a character, like a part of this world. Like I said before, because in Alien, there are sounds happening, and some of those things are incorporated into the score. They're not just, oh, the sound effect guys or the sound designer. Certainly, obviously, there's sound design, which we will get into at some point in another episode. But Jerry Goldsmith creates a score that is all... is both atmosphere and melody. Again, uh-huh. that is very, very, very difficult to do. And oftentimes we can talk about scores for films like, oh yeah, you know, we, we like, oh yeah, it's a great score or, oh, here comes the music. There's music in this part. Um, and even the difference between, I think of the music that Arcade Fire, I know I'm kind of jumping at it, Arcade Fire wrote for the film Her. My dear, I'll be Gorgeous music, absolutely lyrical and Oh, beautiful. I forgot that Arcade Fire did that score. Yeah, it's one of my yeah. favorites. It's just that's amazing. great. Yeah, that's Song on the Beach. Song on no the Beach what. is I've shown yeah. it to you many times. Yeah, that, that yeah. music is like my life. It's just beautiful. Yeah, but that's not you that's can a great listen, score. You can listen to that and realize that is beautiful music. Not to say that what Goldsmith did isn't beautiful music, but it's not mu- score music. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it's more of it's not creating a world. This Arcade Fire created a moment of of wonder and nostalgia right, and, right. and sort of like lyrical beauty, whereas Goldsmith is creating a world, much like oh, yeah. Van Gelis did. And that's the and much like And much like Bernard Herrmann, I think. And, and that's, Absolutely. again, I know we talk about Bernard Herrmann on every episode of every show we do, but there's a reason. It's because he, he was like the pioneer of what contemporary film music could and should be. Mm-hmm. And that's somebody that, that Goldsmith himself very frequently remarked on. That, that, you know, Bernard Herrmann showed him the possibilities of what you could do with theatrical sound. That's like a, a, a huge challenge, I think. And I think it speaks to uh, Goldsmith's artistic uh, abilities that he got out of the way a lot. Because he has like a great melodic gift. A lot of his stuff in other films is, is very sweeping and very melodic and very romantic and, and very lyrical. And with Alien, a lot of it is about the void created in the absence of that. It's about like, you know, when a planet crosses in front of the sun... 
or when the moon crosses in front of the sun, we have an eclipse and we're kind of in darkness. You know, there's like a melody that goes in front of something very bright and then we see the shadow projected from it. And that shadow is the vacuum into which that melody would have fit. Yes. Um, I think what's interesting, a lot of film scores and especially a lot of science fiction film scores from that time period were defined by motives by by motifs by like light light motifs for example the the prototypical example of that is star wars right where everything has a fucking melody associated with it whether it's the empire or whether it's luke or whether it's han and leia there are these these little melodic fragments that we've talked about on this on on the blade runner show at least before called motives that define these little character moments right the score for alien has almost none it has this one that's really memorable, which is introduced by trumpets in the beginning of the main theme, right? The triadic that 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 reminds me of it reminds right. me of being on a ship on sea at sea. That's yeah, that, right. Well, it's like a wave, right? Going yeah, up and down. Yeah, and yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it is like so, it's such an interesting decision, I think, for a melody, for an, a science fiction horror film, isn't it? It is. It's incredible. Have you ever, do you ever, do you, I don't know if you're old enough to remember the show on, it was on WGN called Family Classics. I don't know that or what WGN is. Or I don't know what TV nine. is, Jamie. Oh. I mean, like, like, you plugged it into a wall. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Fucking joy jumps out. Hey, fucking joy. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> but anyways, I, I only brought it up hopefully, hoping that you'd know, but there was a, a melody. And so Family Classics was a show on every Sunday where they would show classic films from- For the family? For, for the 40s and the 50s and the 60s on Channel 9, WGN, um, which okay. was broadca- it's broadcast all over the country. And they would have this theme song that was just a violin. It reminds me of Goldsmith's work. It's a song that sounds like a memory. And that's mm. another thing that I love about his music or his work. I don't even want to call it music because I feel like calling it just music does a disservice to what he did. It's more than yeah. music. It's like, it is. It's like, how do you write a memory? How do you write a feeling? And how do you write a feeling so it's not telling you how to feel, but asking mm-hmm. you how you feel? That's what right. his music, and Alien specifically does. Because a lot of his other films, it's music. It's background. Mm-hmm. It's it's this is what we needed to do star trek sort of you see what you get sort of thing but he worked really well on that he did he did great star trek and then he did star trek films as well he it was a a a sandbox he knew how to play in very very well but his Mm -hmm. mastery comes from knowing this is what i do for that and this is what i do for this whereas with john williams who i also believe is a master you can hear a lot of bernard herman in john williams work whereas with goldsmith He's not as obvious. You don't hear a lot mm. of you. You might hear it in the creative decisions he makes, but not in certainly the melodies. Like, w- mm-hmm. for instance, like in Jaws, that Jaws is a classic score that none of us will ever forget. So much of Jaws comes from what Bernard Herrmann was doing in The Man Who Knew Too Much, Vertigo. Not that that's a bad thing, because Williams, like many great composers, was able to d- draw from Bernard Herrmann and craft mm-hmm. his own work. But again, Goldsmith was like, no, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to create my own right. music. And right. I throw down for that. You know, it's, it's funny that the Jaws score is an interesting case study because in addition to Bernard Herrmann, it obviously owes a, a huge amount to Igor Stravinsky's um, Rite of Spring, which is a, a 
uh, mm-hmm. landmark ballet that um, has influenced me hugely as a composer too. And that uh, it's, it's almost like embarrassing. Although the Jaws score, to be totally honest, is, is one of my favorite film scores ever written. It, I, I get a little bit embarrassed for John Williams sometimes when I'm listening to it because it's so clearly derivative of the Rite of Spring. But then I also realize Williams was like a young ish composer when that you know that was he was barely even an established composer at that point i think he was just well he was in his 40s at that point he was in his 40s yeah but but he didn't come into film scoring for i mean he was a jazz musician for a long time Mm -hmm. he was a a drummer Mm -hmm. um it was something that he wasn't like hugely established at yet he wasn't the star wars john williams right he was he was starting out um that would be a very different story within the next five years but but at that point in the mid 70s he was he was kind of a neophyte and uh and also he was working with a director who had only had done one movie before and he was in his mid twenties, you know, I mean, this was like, he had to make this thing effective and he kind of relied on what he knew how to do best. And I think as, as William's career went on, we see a little bit less of him um, quite so obviously hearkening back to his influences, but you're totally right. The influences on John Williams are a lot more apparent than the influences on Jerry Goldsmith. But, and I know we're talking about Jerry Goldsmith, but I think naturally our conversation is going to sort of take turns and alleyways. Oh yeah. What's interesting about, John Williams, the young John Williams or the younger John Williams is youngish. There was a score that he created that was wholly original and it wasn't as derivative for of, of other work. What, what film do you think I'm talking about before jaws or Or after after, jaws? I think it might've been after, I'm sure it was after jaws big film though. Cape fear. No, Cape fear was in the late eighties. Yo, (laughs) um, what are you talking about? Close encounters. Oh God, I fucking love that score so much. That score is so subtle and so not typical John Williams at all. The melody, the fact that that, that, the really grand melody wasn't really a melody at all. It was language. He had to Mm -hmm. develop music as language. He hasn't done a score like that since. And I mean, I'm sorry to say I haven't heard a really great score from John Williams since. Well, I would say Memoirs of a Geisha was fantastic. Schindler's List is one of the best scores of all time. But I haven't really heard anything from him recently that hasn't been a regurgitation of everything I've heard before, to be honest with you. Mm. And maybe that's just because of age. I'm hoping that with uh, The Rise of Skywalker and if some of that music in the trailer is 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 evident of what we're going to hear, it's fucking phenomenal. Is he scoring that? Oh, yeah. It's his last film. He, he is said. scoring. Okay, yeah, he, he is committed to scoring. But there's music in that trailer that I've never heard before, and it's, it's clearly yeah, John I, I don't Williams. Think, I, you think you think John Williams did the trailer scoring for that? I don't think so. No, I think that they're using some of the music he's already written. Absolutely, no doubt. Really? Oh yeah, you got to listen to it again. Well, I, really I, I, lo- I love it, so I would be totally amazed, and I would be very excited about it. Yeah, but I mean, he's done, he's done so much stuff; it's hard to say. To throw yeah. it back to Goldsmith again, yeah. he's this is the difference between Williams, which is John Williams, is a very Sort of you see what you get, mm-hmm. and Goldsmith is kind of like you hear what you get, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Like, John Williams is far, sense, yeah. far more visual. Like, his music is bombastic and blah, 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 blah. This is Leia's theme, and this is Luke's theme, and here's Yoda's theme. Whereas Goldsmith is not like that. Goldsmith is right. like, no, here is this, in, 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 at least in the, I mean, certainly in other films. Well, the Goldsmith of Alien is not like that. Yes, I, I the Goldsmith of Alien. That's what I'm trying yeah, to say. Yeah, yeah, right. Because yeah, the Goldsmith ta- of Alien he's is tailored not like his that. music for different things. Like obviously mm-hmm. in The Secret of Nim, which is a film that I watch all the time. I just watched it with Dan recently uh, and his sister, like last week. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very much a score, um, but it's actually really, really beautiful. And he wrote the 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 music to the theme song. It's really, really beautiful and innocent. Oh, yeah. And and it 
But at the same time, what's interesting about the score to The Secret of Nim is I can't disconnect the score from the story. The score is the story. And that's, a, again, it's a very hard thing to do. Oftentimes I can remove a score from a film and have it like, and have it sort of live on its own. Blade Runner, you can do that with. The I would say, yeah, like even Vangelis' score, Vangelis' score, I, mean, I am saying Vangelis on purpose, motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> You're devolving. Uh, <laughs> but it's a score that lives outside of the film. Mm-hmm. And I feel like with Goldsmith's Alien score, it doesn't live outside. Of the oh, it film. does not. No, and and that's a very common complaint people have on it. Is that you can, I love that. especially with that 2007 edition. Like it is not easy to just sort of sit there and listen to. I do it. I know you do. I it. do it too. But but for people who aren't who don't have like the working vocabulary of the film so ingrained in them to kind of watch it in their head a little bit, um, it can be it can be tough because a lot of it is really just atmospheric sort of scene setting. So like a great example of that, let's go back to the main theme for a second, which again is not so. Actually, a, a quick little side detour. The title sequence was completely rescored. They had what 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 had happened is that as they had found out that Goldsmith was officially going to be coming on board the project while they were editing it, they were using his music as temp scoring like all over the place in place of the uh, the Tamita music. And so they got this, they were using all this patent music and all this shit from the mid seventies that was like very, you know, like romantic and sensual. So that's kind of what they were, what they had in their heads when, when they started this film out. And that's what they were asking him to do. They were like, can you make this again? Can we just like use this cue again? But can you just like change it a little bit? And he's like, no, I want to do something new for this. And they're like, well, you got 10 weeks, so fucking do what you can. So he turned in a much more sensual opening music for this thing as a title sequence is forming which again and I hope we'll talk about that in our post-production episode is like such an incredible incredible title sequence um, but the music there was totally different than what it is now which of course is completely devoid of melody or anything recognizable it's like it's like it's being birthed into the universe as this sort of sound world right um, but if you listen to the the soundtrack as it was put out or initially, you get a very different view of the main title sequence, which is the music that comes after that, which is that trumpet note, that three that triadic motif that rises up and comes back down that I mentioned. But what that emerges out of is what I want to focus on for a second, and that is this thing called a polychord. So. Um, a polychord is 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 a is a stacked series of notes that comprise enough um, diverse harmonic material that they don't sound like they're a chord in any sort of key or any sort of specific place in the musical spectrum. They kind of encompass something broader than that, right? There's enough overtones going on that it sounds like it's kind of opening out into forever. And I, I love polychords, and I use that all the time. The the first thing you hear in the score, if you have the, the soundtrack as it was released in the 80s for this film, is a, a really expansive polychord that will probably remind you quite a lot of the music of Jorg Ligeti from 2001 A Space Odyssey. Or the music of Christoph Penderecki. Uh, whose stuff has been used in every single fucking horror movie ever ever made, even though he wasn't a film score composer. He was just a contemporary classic composer. Um, and it is just this very expensive, ex- expansive, uh, very colorful, very frightening, very mysterious kind of uh, eternal sound that kind of comes out of nowhere. And it does, because it is polychordal, because it is made up of music that goes beyond a given scale or a given key area, 
it suggests infinity because it's not pulling down towards anything or away from anything. It's just sitting there statically. And what I love is that that's what we're presented with at first. And we have like 20 seconds of just this, just this elemental coming into being. And then we have this beautiful melody come out of that. We have this gorgeous rising triadic motif that sounds to me like Debussy. And it's funny that you say um, it sounds like the ocean because I totally agree with you. It sounds like Debussy's La Mer, which is literally means the sea. And it's an orchestral piece that Claude Debussy wrote in the late 19th century that totally sounds to me like something that Goldsmith was probably listening to or thinking about when he was writing this. It's about the, the wonder of the open ocean, and it's about waves crashing, and it's about being in the sea. And I feel like this melody in that it kind of rises up like almost like it's triumphant, but it's not because it falls back down again, and then it goes back again, but because it's operating in this polychordal atmosphere that I was talking about, it's not actually clearly heroic, and it's not actually clearly um, lamenting. It's just sort of sitting there. It's a series of notes floating in the air. Yes, and it sounds like to me someone lost at sea. It sounds like the song of someone of a mm. ship at sea, and no one knows where it is. It sounds like the like mm. like re- dissonance or resonance. It doesn't. It's not a heroic theme. It's not like right. necessarily a sad theme. It's kind of like a where are you theme. You know? Yes, it's just it's sort of unmoored, right? Yes. And it's trying to find a home in that huge polychord. It's yes. looking for something, and our and our ear is trying to do that, right? We're hearing it as the sort of dominant seventh chord rising up, but it's it's really not because the what's happening harmonically underneath it isn't giving any underpinning to that. But we're thinking of it in those terms because we're used to hearing this is the hero's theme or this is the theme of the movie. We're getting now we have a fucking title sequence. Now this is the way the movie's going to go, mm-hmm. but it's not. It just floats there like it's like looping along in space, played by a single trumpet again, which I think is a really interesting orchestrational choice and I think sets the tone for the rest of this film score because nothing is quite what it seems right yeah so we, we're presented with that and then it fades away and then we're once again put into this Penderecki-esque polychordal atmosphere again where we're just sitting there again in this crazy elemental silence with the trumpet still resonating in the background like we're still kind of hearing it right and then we're presented with the other big thematic thing that we hear this, this sort of three themes right there's the trumpet thing and then there's that that those um, those descending uh dyads those two note things that are being played by wind instruments and then later by strings and that's that's used quite a bit that echoing that thing right which we just hear over and over and over again. And then that, again, also just sits there and it doesn't actually go anywhere. It's just a static presentation of a beautiful sound that is unsettling and yet austere yes. and fascinating, right? Yes. It's not saying, come with me. It's saying, I'm here. Yes. And there's another point in the score where you'll hear that trumpet theme and then you hear this... And it's and it's really unnerving because it's it's not telling you how to feel. It's whereas oftentimes in films, music tells you how to feel. This music is not telling you how to feel, except for we don't know. It's almost saying like we don't know how this is going to end. The music is telling us we don't know how this is going to end. We don't know who's going to live. And when the music's right. telling you that, 
all bets are off. This is a scary environment exactly. to be in. And music doesn't exactly. usually work like that in films. And we can get into this. There's one thing that I wanted to kind of reference in terms of my issue with other alien scores as it relates to John, to John, to Jerry Goldsmith, John William, Goldsmith, William Goldsmith, William John Goldsmith, William Vangelis, <laughs> Jerry Goldenthal. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I, 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 shall I get into it now? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So my major issues with well, actually, hang on. Let, let me let me give you a two second thing that it just okay, sure, sure. The the third the third thing that I wanted to mention is the alien music that I talked about before with the conch and the didgeridoo and all all that sound. Those are kind of the three things that I just wanted to kind of put in the back of our heads. Go ahead. So a large issue I've had, and people have heard me talk about this on the show. They've seen me write about it in, in our group, Building Better Worlds. Join up. What what on, on Facebook. I heard the the themes or the motifs from Alien in Aliens. I've heard it a lot in... I've heard some of it in Prometheus. Not a lot, but there's some of it in Prometheus. And there's a shit ton of it in Covenant. And Very little in Prometheus, actually. It's, it's there interesting. There is very little. But that that a, is really its own score. It is its own too. score, and I don't like yeah. it at all. Uh, just be, <laughs> Yeah, I don't like it that much either. But the only but reason it's, why it's I don't different. like it, it's not because it's not good music. It's just because it's music. It's not... Hmm. I don't feel like the music was doing anything for the atmosphere of the film. It didn't. It didn't do anything for the atmosphere of the film. I don't. Yeah, it was, it was clumsier. But, yeah, but I think at the beginning it's really beautiful. Yeah, I, think the, I don't like the like theme. like everything else. The first ten minutes are amazing. I think. I don't movie. like the theme though. That first theme you hear it reminds me of Star Trek. I don't like that theme pulls me right out of it. It's not a wow, bad really? theme on its own. It just doesn't remind me of Alien. And oftentimes when people hear me talk about my love for Alien, my love for the score, and I want to sort of get back to that. It's not me saying recreate Alien. And the problem I have with the score for Covenant isn't that this, the composer, tell me his name really quick, Jed Kurzel. Kurzel. Jed Kurzel. Yeah. It's not, I've heard Jed Kurzel's music. I own his soundtrack to Macbeth. Jed Kurzel yeah. wrote the score for Macbeth. It with is atmospheric yeah. and beautiful. He did the Babadook too. Yeah. It, it, That's his, a great His work score. is amazing. And I could tell that in Covenant, he was really guided to say, this is what I love, this is what I want, whatever. My issue with hearing the score for Alien in other Alien films is that this is a score that's integral to the film of Alien. It does not belong anywhere else. It does not belong in any other film. That's the, that's one of the film's voices. And maybe you disagree, that's fine, whatever. I'm interested to... What, to and it's not that... And I sort of understood what they were doing in a little bit in... Because there are some major riffs from alien in prometheus and then they're all over in covenant and they're all over in aliens and it's not to when i not, when i hear them i'm not like oh my god this is awful i'm not saying that either what i'm saying is that score was crafted even though there was a lot of controversy and strife and struggle around producing that score and getting it right for the first film that score is the voice of the nostromo it's the voice of the derelict it is not the voice of any other film and so when i hear it in other films my first thing is and i'm not saying i understand the work of composers i understand knowing you knowing what you did for gethsemane and the work that you've done in the ballet i know the work that it takes my first instinct is to say, that's fucking lazy. And I'm not saying that about the composer. I'm saying that about the people who directed, like, yeah, we want some of this mm. in there. And understanding mm. that that score is the voice of that film. And when you when you remove it from that film and use it in other things, you not only do a disservice to the film that it's in, you do, you do, you do a disservice to the original film. And that's why I'm so powerfully passionate about it. And also why I'm so powerfully excited and love the score for Alien 3, which will 
do an episode, which we need to do an episode on that. Real yeah, soon. we got to do a fucking episode on that because that is that is <laughs> one of the greatest scores of, of all of time, anything yes. ever yes. ever written in any um, capacity. So I, I just want just... Elliot Goldenthal to fucking respond to my email so we can do. I want him to come on the show so bad. Oh, let's do it. Let's see if we can do it. But yeah. so so listen, I don't disagree with you on this. But you finish what you're saying. No, I'm just I just wanted to kind of people hear me talk about it and I. I mean, there are certain scores, like for instance, the score to Resurrection, I, which I think is, oh, I think John has, Frizzell. yeah, I think has a lot of problems. It's very obvious. The film is mm-hmm. weird. The score is weird. I feel like the score does the film a disservice. I feel like the score is very obvious. The score is not alien at all. Not meaning like alien. Just the score doesn't let me. The score is telling me how to think. It's telling me how to feel. It's it's not giving the space for anything else than just to be this kind of I mean that's what the score is doing most of the time and then or it's doing like look Ripley 8 is in a cocoon like oh I hate it and and I don't hate it I don't think it's of course John Frizzell a lot of hard work a lot of hard work goes into what they these people do they pour their heart and soul in it I really appreciate it. It's just it just wasn't right for an alien film. But I, yeah. I I digress. So when I'm very critical of music that I hear in other films is because I feel like the the score that I'm hearing has not found it does not have a voice. The score is not mm-hmm. appropriately telling me its voice. And the scores that I love like Under the Skin, Interstellar, Inception, so many films that I could name, Secret of Nim, Chariots of Fire. Blade Runner, Blade Runner 2049, it's because those scores successfully found the voice of the film and they work mm-hmm. in tandem together. So, Yeah, I, I think um, not to like get too much more into this, but I, I, I by and large totally agree with you. I, I think that um, it's an over-reliance on themes to kind of guide audiences into feeling like things are connected when they don't really need to be anymore. I, I love the score to Covenant, but I don't want to surprise anybody because I, yeah, I, really, I really like that movie quite a lot. Um, and the, I love what he brought themes. that was original to it. I'm sorry. Me I too. Love his and, and, and I th- but I think there's enough of it in there. And I, I think there's enough really original stuff in there that the themes that are borrowed from it don't bother me at all because they feel like references. And because I feel like when you're 40 years removed, I guess 38 years removed at that point, from a, a film that inspired it, like I'm okay with having echoes back. Especially because what we're what we're seeing when those themes are happening in Covenant, they, they happen by and large early on in the movie, right? Like those are kind of some of the establishing moments in the film, and it's kind of tethering it to this to the events that we know are coming. You know, like it's it's tethering it in my mind at least to things that although they happened a long time ago in terms of real life history are about to happen in that film. They kind of work to me as like pre echoes of it because there's a tie in there. Um, but yeah, the, the, my favorite parts of that score have nothing to do with the themes that were in Alien. That they're they're Jed Kurzel's themes, which I think are absolutely brilliant, and I love. and And I think part of why Elliot Goldenthal's music is so great in Alien Three, one of the millions of reasons why, is because it's so original and it's so different. Which and you because hear it's in the Covenant voice of that as well. Sure. Oh yeah, and, and I, I think I think you hear it a lot in Covenant. I just think it's easy because we're presented with some themes that we know right up front to kind of look at it like it's more of a throwback. And I think it really, I really think it's a new score. I think that um, it's unfortunately front-loaded with a lot of reference materials that I can see kind of coloring people's hearing of it, you know, when they listen through. But I think Alien 3 is not like that at all. It's a totally unique thing. And, and I think part of why it's so great is because it just sounds like the world of Fury 161. It's like that is that is what that sounds like. It is that anguishing. It is that horrifying. It's that beautiful. It's that rapturous, you know. Just like Gold, Just like Goldsmith's music was, you know, 
this weird mix of terror and rapture and beauty and negativity and silence and motion and stasis. It's all of these wonderful contrasting things that make the score really great. Of course, Aliens has none of that, although it has some great action cues in it and it has some really nice moments. It is not, it's not a work of art in the way that those two scores are. I think Goldsmith and Goldenthal are definitely in their own league. But I have to say, I think Kurzel's score is, uh, is, is, really, really great. And I also think that Frizzell's score, not to get totally derailed here, has moments of really incredible brilliance in it. I think it's like 30% pure gold and 70% complete throwaway, which is kind of frustrating because the movie is like that too for me. Resurrection is like 30% I really love, and then 70% I'm just like shaking my head like, why is this happening? Um, and it kind of fits the movie a little bit, I think, which is interesting. But what's, it's a strange what's so cool beast, with- for sure. It's a very strange piece, and so is the score. But what's interesting with with gold with Goldsmith's music, see, now I'm gonna be saying fucking Goldenthal this whole time. What's interesting with Goldsmith's music is that um, I could not picture Alien working as well as it does with anything else. And a great example of that is something that I know we both um, wanted to bring up. I'll, I'll kind of kick it off. The way that he scored the um, the hypersleep sequence when they're when they're waking up at the beginning, which was rescored again. That's another thing that was rewritten because um, they didn't think it was working well. Um, and that was against his wishes. He did not want to score it like that with this beautiful, lush, kind of classical sounding thing. And he was pushed to do it. And of course, because he's Jerry Goldsmith and he's a master at this shit, he just knocked it out of the park with you know a two-day scoring session and came up with this music that's so beautiful. But what's so interesting about it is that there's the context that it happens in. And that's the thing with Alien that we that we I really hope people are getting out of this extended series that we're doing is that... It is all these brilliant things. It's all these amazing moments, but it's the context in which they happen. It's that nothing happens in isolation, and that's not a pun. (laughs) No pun intended. Everything that happens in Alien that's brilliant is brilliant because of the way in which it happens and where it is in the film, right? All of these moments, like the chestburster sequence is like the perfect example of this. The chestburster sequence is something that, sure, it's shocking and it's amazing and it's transgressive and it's haunting. But like, if that had happened differently, if that had happened in a more obvious way or in a way that was more forecasted, it would not be memorable. It would just be a gory sci-fi moment amongst a sea of gory 70s sci-fi moments. The reason it's art is because of where it happens and how. It's because it's so brutal and so unexpected and so revolting and so intoxicating and because it's over so quick. Because just as soon as you feel like you can figure out what's going on, it's gone, Right? And then you, just like the cast, are left with your jaw on the floor wondering, oh my god, if that just happened, what could possibly happen for the rest of this movie, right? The score is like that too. The score is these moments, like that hypersleep sequence, where things happen that in isolation, if they were not in the context of this film, would just be beautiful creative choices where you would go, oh, I really, that that sounds so peaceful, I really get it. But that moment happens after silence and after those polychordal moments of terror and after, I mean, I mean, when I say silence, I mean actual silence. I mean, like, there's a little bit of sound work, but it is silent for minutes leading up to that, right? All we hear is, like, the computer transmission turning on, and we hear, like, you know, wind blowing for whatever reason in the corridors, and then we hear this, this hypersleep sequence disengaging. And then we're presented with this complete, out-of-nowhere, lush, beautiful thing that, again, sounds like Debussy to me. And then again, it's just gone. It just vanishes. There is no resolution to it. And that's what Goldsmith's score is. Goldsmith's score is a series of utterances that are beautiful and human and understandable that are 
isolated by vast gulfs of icy darkness that we can never ponder and we can never get to the bottom of. And that's why it's unforgettable. And that's why Alien is unforgettable. Alien is a movie of beautiful human moments that are separated by vast stretches of actual terror. And I think that's why it's something we can never get enough of because it speaks to some part in us that's always searching for resolution and never finding it, you know? Goldsmith's score is always trying to resolve itself. It's always trying to get somewhere, and just as it's about to, something happens and the bottom drops out and it's gone. It never gets anywhere until the end, which I think Goldsmith didn't actually like, I think is some of the great music ever written for Hollywood. And that's why we end the shows with it, because when you finally get that triadic trumpet theme played by the strings, and it is just so triumphant and beautiful. That's what I wanted to talk about next. And lush. Oh my God. Yeah, we can close with that. Yeah, like that's the only moment in the film where what's interesting about that piece is it's the music isn't, the score isn't telling you everything is going to be okay. What the score is telling you is that you've survived. For me. Um, Because it still feels like you're out on the sea by yourself you're out in space by yourself but there it's peace it's just peace from those circumstances that happened before it's not resolution it's just peace and those are very different things exactly right but it's something right it's the first time we're presented with something to hold on to and i think that's part of why it's so memorable for us the way it ends is so uh it's so it's so magical and and i guess in kind of closing um it reminds me a lot of the arc, musically speaking, of Tristan and Isolde, which I think I brought up on this show before. I might have brought it up on, on Shoulder of Orion, but um, it's the, the Wagner opera. It must have been Shoulder of Orion that I was talking about this in. So it starts with this prelude that's really legendary. Everybody knows it when they hear it. Um, it was featured very prominently in Lars von Trier's Melancholia. It's this like really uh, interesting piece of music that was s- perhaps semi-atonal at a time when that wasn't really a thing in the 19th century, and that it kind of felt unmoored from a traditional tonality. It felt like its own um, harmonic statement. And because of that, it was longing. And the story of Tristan and Isolde is one of longing. It's one of trying to get resolution and not finding it. And so what Wagner did with that opera was the whole entire thing was a series of near resolutions that are then moved away from. Like just as you think something's going to resolve itself, it's swept away into something else. And so this opera, which goes on for hours and hours and hours, finally gets somewhere with this really radiant B major music called the Liebestode, the life death. And it's the song about, I'm not going to like give away the opera for people, but it's, it's sung by uh, somebody who has just lost the love of their lives and, and losing them has basically come to realize the ultimate truth of her love. And because of that, it's this moment of like absolute resolution harmonically underpinned by an emotion that is completely unresolved because it's, lo- it's love and death and life and death in the same exact breath, right? And... Um, and I think what's great about Goldsmith ending the, the film with that is that we get this resolution, harmonically speaking, that is not actually an emotional resolution because she's still floating in the Narcissus. She's still out there in the middle of nothing, right? She's not safe, but she has made it and something has happened and it is a cog in that journey. And that is something worth uh, basking in, I think. 
You know what's interesting about the the score for that moment? I can also, if you if we were to take off the end of John Williams' score for Jaws, the end of Jaws, where they're kicking their legs and they're swimming, yeah. uh, you could put that score there and it would work completely. Because yeah. they're out in the middle of the ocean. It's sort of that nautical feeling where you're still out on the sea. You're not at home. You're not on a planet. You, you are not there. You haven't found resolution, but you found peace. You found mm -hmm. peace away from those other circumstances. And that's sort of what a little bit reminds me of the end of Jaws. Yeah. Although it's funny that then they fuck it up because then in the titles at the end, at the in the credits at the end, you see them landing on the beach and I'm kind of like, ah. Like, yeah, kind yeah. Of, like we get it, you know. But yeah, totally. I think that's a really interesting um, moment. And I think we can we can wrap up. But um, I guess the one other thing that I would want to point, pull people's attention to is the way that he scores um, the, the planetoid, the way he scores LV-426, which I think is um, just absolutely brilliant and so mysterious and so not gimmicky. And I think what's great is that, so he's writing this in the 70s. And this is at a time when, as we've unpacked on previous episodes, you know, film scoring was not uh, as at least in terms of science fiction, was not as like serious in general. It wasn't as nuanced. It was a lot more pulpy. It was a lot more like space operas were what were becoming to be in vogue. It was like Star Wars or Star Trek. It was coming out of the B-movie kind of era with Forbidden Planet and Planet of the Vampires and those, the Italian films, et cetera, the, the, the Jalo films. Um, Goldsmith wrote really subtle music and, uh, really subtle music even during moments that were very alien and would have been really easy to score with a lot of horror cues where, where things could just be kind of loud and shrieky and scary and a lot of high string runs and things that were kind of like freaky and weird and a lot of you know uh, theremins kind of wobbling all over the place and shit like a lot of sci-fi scores have been doing up until that point but instead I of that i love the theremin so much Oh, I love the theremin too, but but that would have been a much more obvious decision yeah. to my it's ear a very for that specific moment, right? Thing. Yes, yes. But instead, what does he do? He cre he uses acoustic instruments. He uses a didgeridoo. He uses the the serpent. He uses a conch shell. He uses violins. He uses brass instruments and wind instruments, and he creates a void soundscape where there isn't really music, but there's timbre and tonality happening, and it's happening in a way. That, again, just like the beginning with the big polychord that opens it, you can't really put your finger on exactly what you're hearing, but you're hearing a lot of something. And that's what's alien about it, right? It's alien because you don't know what it is, but you recognize it as something. It is, and you don't have words for it yet, and that's what's alien about it. And final thoughts for me, uh, there's one scene that comes to mind, aside from, I mean, there's just so many, everything. When Brett is walking to find Jonesy. And he walks into that room. You're not really sure what kind of place it is. It looks like a warehouse. Who knows what it could be? It's a docking bay. Uh, I don't know. And what do you hear a lot of? You hear chains dangling and some water dripping. That's it. Most composers would crank it up, make the music, make it foreboding. But what's scary is that there's nothing. And I think about times where when I was a kid, I got lost in the wood. I was 15. And I was a very impressionistic, gullible frightened 15 year old very emotionally immature and so i was lost in these, these great big woods at 15 and what scared me is that i heard nothing i mean i was in the woods but i i didn't know what was around me it was completely foreign to me and brett being in that space and maybe it was ridley scott's decision to say let's not have not have any score there but what's be the beauty of that score is that it knew when to be silent, or they knew when it should be silent. They knew that 
all right, the music right now isn't the music. The music right now is our fear. Mm-hmm. What is he? Because at this point, especially for the audiences in the in the seventies, the last time they saw this thing, it was this big. It was very small. You know, they just see this guy looking for this cat. That's about it. Um, now we're conditioned to it. We know what he's walking into. But the the issue or the genius of of that scene is that Brett didn't know what he was walking into. It's just the you know, the engine room or whatever kind of room that was, he had always been in many, many times before. And he was comfortable enough and kind of off of his guard enough to take his hat off and to... So, I mean, I don't know what kind of water. I guess it was probably water from the coolant system. So it was probably relatively fine. And he and he was hot and he took a break and it was a beautiful space as well. It almost felt sacred. The place felt like a church. And the score was essentially absent from that scene and that's the beauty of jerry goldsmith oh yeah and remember that was the that was the moment that he remembered most from his first viewing of the film when he decided that he was going to do it when he watched it alone and he said that the moment brett died was to me one of the most horrifying things i had ever seen and it's and i think it's you're absolutely right it speaks to his skill as a filmmaking composer that he chose not to score that moment i wouldn't be surprised if ridley had asked him to write something there and if he had fought him on it. But I think it's also a testament to Ridley Scott as a filmmaker for having the instincts to agree with him. So even if it wasn't necessarily Ridley Scott's idea to make that silent, if it was Goldsmith's idea, which I kind of feel like was probably the case, Scott recognized in Goldsmith that that was the right thing to do and got rid of it. So whatever actually happened there, the result is that we have a moment of silence where, as you beautifully said, the only music is the music of his fear and the music of our fear. And I think that that is a, uh, a great way to wrap this up. Sounds good. Oh, it's just a great episode. I, I love this. I love this is some of the this is something we haven't really discussed before on the show in any kind of depth. Years and years ago, we had an episode where we went through each score for the Alien films with my original partner Peter, and it wasn't investigative. It wasn't in depth. It was just sort of this overview. But this is really the first time in the history of per- Perfect Organism that we have investigated score. And it's just, I love it. Uh, music means re- a lot to me. Uh, music informs me. I listen to music 24-7. Something's on, whether it's ambient music or Enya or or Interstellar or some type of score. That's, I'm, it's 24-7 in my life. So this has been a great conversation. So thanks for listening, everybody. And thanks for talking, Patrick. Yeah, I, I know that for a fact because when I've visited with you, I've, there's been... Uh soundtracks playing when you picked me up from the airport we were listening to uh, uh what was it Might have been oh my god what was it was it 2049 no 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 it was, oh, it was uh, interstellar it was a, no it? it was not interstellar you know oh. it was a synth score that was kind of like van gogh's synchronicity in the 90s synchronicity that's what it was yeah i was yeah. gonna say schenectady in new york but that's not what it was although it's a great movie <laughs> Um, no, I, I'm, I'm totally excited. I don't, even, I don't even know if we've really gotten into this on PO. I know we've talked about it on Shoulder of Ryan, but if people don't realize who are listening to this, I'm a, I'm a professional composer. That's my, my background. And what, I, what I'm um, you know, known for, and if, if I'm known for anything, um, is, is that. And so like, if people want to talk about music also within Building Better Worlds or anything with me at any kind of a technical level, or they are curious um, about you know, my music and how Alien has influenced it, which, which is hugely, um, you know, always hit me up. I'm, I'm willing to talk about it. It's funny, I, I know we, we mentioned this a couple of years ago, but um, my music was used uh, for proximity for our, our Alien project that we did a couple of years back. And, um, and it was basically music that I'd already written for orchestras to play. But we were realizing as we were using it as kind of temp scoring for this thing that it fit like incredibly well and it felt like an Alien score. 
and I think that was the first time I'd ever thought of it in that context, that the the music of the Alien movies, and especially Jerry Goldsmith's score, were hugely influential on my development as a musician growing up, and are probably a lot of the same things that I have tried to do. Um, a, a lot of the things that I try to do in my music, I think, are things that I learned from Jerry Goldsmith, and that I learned from the score to Alien, you know? How you don't necessarily tell people what to feel, but you give them space to feel things, and you, and you make them question themselves. You use mystery in ways that are really interesting, and you allow the beauty of melody to be subsumed by the wonders of uncertainty and that there's this great dynamic about how to make a project work. And I, I really think listening to the Goldsmith score over and over and over again as a child rubbed off on me a lot. So anybody who wants to talk, up, talk about music, hit me up. Always ready to do it. And one day, final note, one day I would love to do a, an episode, not for Patreon, but just talk about the scores that we love and play some samples and scores that have shaped us as alien fans, things that stick out to us. Maybe we find certain elements in scores that we love and like, oh yeah, that sounds a little bit like this. That makes sense why he would like this. Mm. Much, of, much of why I, I love the score for Under the Skin it, because it reminds me of the feeling I had when I saw Alien for the first time. Yeah. Much of oh, my, yeah. Much of my dis- disdain for Alien, the score for Aliens is because it reminds me of everything else and it's yeah. not wholly yeah. unique. But at any rate, yeah. thank you everyone for listening. This has been a really fun episode. Back in the saddle. Back in the saddle. <laughs> See you guys. For more on Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast, please visit perfectorganism.com. Perfect Organism is available for listen or download through Podbean, iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and Spotify. If you'd like to support the show, please visit perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Thank you.